You're listening to Real Talk for Real Men, episode number six. Welcome to the Real Talk for Real Men podcast. Lifestyle advice for men so powerful, you'll want to run your life on it. And now your hosts, Guy Mullen and Chris Field. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is Guy Mullen, and I'm with my friend and co-host, Chris Field, and we are doing part two of Manhood Horizons. Welcome, Chris. And I'm actually really looking forward to it. That first recording we did uh, for the first broadcast you did was just so exciting. It was just great to go back and visit that material. And I think that uh, the sort of feedback indicates that the men are really appreciating just looking at their manhood and, and thinking of some serious thoughts about it. Yeah. yeah, well, it's a serious topic. And if you didn't um, catch part one, I suggest you go back and go back and listen to it. You might want to uh, listen to this one first, keep listening to this one and then go back and do it. Or you might want to stop and go and do the first one. It's up to you. But uh, I do recommend that you listen to both of these sessions together. So, Well, maybe, Guy, we should just catch people up on where we were with, with, that's, with this. That's, yeah. that's a good idea. So... So Chris was talking about his, um, his history in, in broadcasting and TV and radio, and he's also published some books. And one of those books was Manhood Horizons. And it's all about the journey of manhood and looking, uh, looking having the right... Um, uh, you better explain it. <laughs> I'm going to get all over the shop here. I think what I tried to do in Manhood Horizons was to uh, clarify for men a biblical picture of what real manhood is and to get them to adjust their expectation of what kind of man they could become, where they might go with their manhood, uh, and to inspire them to uh, a much higher uh, vision of what they could be and uh, what God intends them to be than what they might have uh, had in their head. And I think we, we finished, uh, if I'm re- remembering correctly, we were wrapping up the session talking about how the culture mm. imposes on us. Mm. And, and the, the solution to that is that we have to actually let God tell us what a real man is. Just, just before we get onto that, there's some cultures which try and have a different solution. Okay, so what we talked about in the first one is that the culture is defining what is a man. It's saying, well, you need to be like this, A, B, C, D, in order to, to be the ideal man in that age of that culture. And over all your years, there's been a lot of changes through... Of Mate, don't you make me sound like I'm really old. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I won't, we won't go there. But, but um, you know, over your few years that you've been alive, there's been a number of changes in the, in the culture. And there's a lot of issues with a man's identity and probably also contributes to that generation gap between between sons and men as well. If that changing culture is changing the definition of men, then then if we're relying on that, then we're going to be really confused about what it is to be a man. But, um, you know, some of the cultures have these rituals that define going from a boy to a man. And so in some ways they are trying to take it outside of the culture, if you like. This is the way I look at it. I don't know if I'm right. Taking it outside of the culture and having this constant thing which goes through the generations to define... A boy to a, a boy to a man. Obviously, the Jews have the have the bar mitzvah. Uh, the the Amish have a, a a rum springer about age sixteen, and in Brazil they have the at age thirteen they have this thing with ants and the, the hands, and it's really painful. You can watch Hamish and Andy do it on YouTube. It's really unpleasant. And in New Guinea, at age seven, they separate the young men from their from their from their from their mothers. And they have to they have to be separated from them. So these cultures have these different rituals to try and define the difference between a boy and a man. But 
what we're going to explore today is that God really isn't saying, well, that's not when you become a man. It's not about this ritual. It's about something else. And I think picking that thought up, if we're going to find a biblical definition of what a man is, it's interesting that the scripture refers in a number of different locations, uh, uh, distinguishing between men and women in a significant way. For instance, uh, there were some battles he had in the time uh, of, of Samuel, and uh, there was this talk about how uh, prophetically uh, uh, the uh, enemy would be like women. Uh, the enemy soldiers would become like yeah, women. And so clearly we have this concept in our mind of what it is to stand like a man and, and what we would expect from a, a woman in a situation. Now, of course, there are some very bold and, and very capable women. I'm not trying to put women down in that, but I'm just mm-hmm. saying that, uh, that there's this uh, ready cultural context that we have that a man is expected to step up to the plate, uh, uh, draw his sword, be ready for the fight, and we would expect that it's appropriate for the women to go and find a place of shelter. Right? And so when a man rushes off and hides himself behind the rocks, we, we know straight away that that's not the appropriate thing for a man to be doing. He's mm-hmm. somehow uh, running away from his responsibilities. And look, in the First World War and the Second World War, uh, you know, soldiers, if they deserted, they were shot. Yeah. It's pretty... There was an expectation. Yeah. Uh, men had to do certain things. What I've noticed, and you're talking about cultural change over time, I remember particularly hearing someone talk for the very first time in my teenage years about a snag. I thought, what in the world is a snag? And they explained that was a sensitive New Age guy. And this was the the terminology that became quite common. I haven't heard it for years now, but it was Mm. quite the common talk in the 70s about our obligation as men to be sensitive. You know, we have to be kind of... We have to be, no matter how macho or how how manly we we may be, we have to be able to be very genteel, very, very sensitive to the thoughts and wishes and, and, and um, uh, values of the women around us. So tough as nails and very hard and dangerous on the sports field. But then as soon as you come off the sports field. And the sensitive new age guy became a kind of a, a benchmark. But what it really also said was that that uh, if you were abrupt, if you were male, if you were a blokey, if you were. Um, opinionated, if you were the sort of things that, that in a previous generation would have been seen as ideal male traits, uh, you were now out of order. And this was part of that shifting of the tide uh, until men feel that they um, have to apologise for feeling uh, a sense of, of ire or a sense of strength or a sense of fight within them to go and address a particular problem or situation. Mm. Now let's get back to the biblical picture of what a man is. Mm. Uh, I, I love the idea that's presented to us in Scripture that real manhood is actually selfless. Uh, the aberrations that we see in manhood and, and what a lot of uh, anti-male thinking is generated around is the idea of the, the despotic man who just snaps his fingers and says, you know, bring me my slippers, bring me my newspaper and treats everyone around him as if they are his slaves. Mm. The true biblical picture of a man Mm. is that a man actually lives his life for and on behalf of other people. Mm. And so the um, soldiers in um, the Israel were called to fight and they were called to fight for the people, for the city, Mm. not for themselves, but it was actually for others. And so we have this situation where a real um, test, a litmus test for manhood 
is that when someone is arrogant and belligerent and wanting their family to please them their way, that they're actually not reflecting godly manhood. That godly manhood, we can test it straight away by looking at whether it is for the benefit of others. So this idea of this patriarchal uh, head who directs everything, runs everything, has all these women around him and runs things like a king is not the biblical model that you're talking about. I think the idea of patriarchy is, is very biblical. But we, hear, we have that verse about a, 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 a wise husbandman brings out of his storehouse things new and old. Uh, I'd like the, I like the idea of a man who is the head of his home, who has amassed resources, has amassed and, and built infrastructure within the, the life of the home, which benefits the wife and benefits the children and benefits the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren and the guests and the extended family. He's able to bring out for them treasures, uh, old things that he stored away a long time ago and, and put together for some, and, and things that are fresh and new that he's still new, a fresh harvest of new things that he's bringing into their lives. And so he might be a ruler and he might be a king within that context, but not so that he can say, okay, come and, and feed me grapes, you know, um, come and entertain me. Mm. But I've now, he becomes the king of a realm that is created that is a safe place a special place, an enriching place for these other people. Like a great tree that provides shade and fruit. and Absolutely. That's a yeah. great analogy yeah, for that's, it. That's the one that, um, you know, that, that they had for Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. That he was this great leader who provided all these things for those people around him. Um, but in this case, it all got to his head. He didn't realize it was God giving it to him. Mm. But we don't, we don't want to go down that track. So one of, but one of the things you talk about is this moral accountability and how the moral accountability between men and women is different. Yes, and I think that that goes right back, if you want to take it, right back to the Garden of Eden, because God put upon Adam a certain responsibility, and whilst that responsibility fell upon Eve, it turns out that both Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. Mm. But when God came and dealt with the situation... His, his harshest and most severe judgment was upon the man. Hmm. Because the buck stopped with him. The buck stops with the man, yeah. And I think we've just got to accept that, that in God's economy, the man has to accept the moral accountability, the, the moral responsibility. I use the picture of... That, of, that doesn't mean to uh, e- an, uh, are not equal in value and rights. Absolutely not. It, doesn't, no, no. it just means that the man has... The buck stops with him in God's eyes. And I think that I like the example uh, in a corporation, something will go wrong. Some machine will break down, uh, some money will be lost, some damage will be done somewhere. And, and they work their way up from the bottom to find out which manager, middle manager, was the one who should have you know, carried the can for that. right? Yeah. And so when God sees that something's going wrong in our family, in our culture, he works his way up and he gets to the man and says, yeah. You're the middle manager here <laughs> uh, who, who's going to have to carry the can for that. And so the, there is very real sense in which in God's economy, uh, God actually does call us absolutely to that level of moral accountability. I notice that, that uh, probably the best way to see some of the aspects of manhood is to see it in the lives of key men in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And if we've got enough time, let me talk quickly about uh, my favorite representative here and I'm going to talk about Abraham for a moment I'd like to talk to you about Job as well but Abraham an interesting character uh, he was an uh, old man 100 years old 
Now, admittedly, people lived uh, maybe a little bit longer back in those days, but 100 was 100. You know, it was a, he, he was no spring chicken. And he was living in a tent uh, in, the, in the desert, you know, in the wilderness. Mm. And he wasn't that far away from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God came down to destroy Sodom and to destroy Gomorrah and some other villages that were around them. And before he did, he came to have a conversation with Abraham. Now, there's a man that before God does what he's intending to do, he will reveal his plans to a man. He didn't go and talk to Sarah, he talked to Abraham. And he began to explain that he was, God was going to go down and destroy those cities. And Abraham stepped up and started to actually challenge God. Now, politely, not arrogantly, but he just brought to God this question, what if there are uh, so many righteous people? Surely the, God, the judge of all the earth isn't going to kill the righteous with the, the unrighteous. And God said, no, if there's those people are there, I won't. And Abraham continued to whittle the number down. What if yeah, it's this, a very curious, very curious story, that one, isn't it? It's amazing. Yeah. You know, what if, what, if there's, what if there's not 50, there's only 45? What if there's not 45, there's only 50? What if, what if there's only 30? What if there's only 20? And yeah. finally it gets down to 10. 10. And um, uh, sadly, there weren't even 10 righteous people in the city. Now, what I find really significant about that is that Sodom and Gomorrah were really ideal, hot, successful, wonderful, glitzy places, right? That the, the, the mayor, the kings of these cities were, were, were really had lots of reason to be proud of themselves. Really wonderful pr- produce around there, uh, high levels of um, productivity. Uh, but none of the movers and shakers in Sodom and Gomorrah had any clout. The people with money couldn't have saved that city. The people with political power could not have saved that city. Mm-hmm. All the arts people who were their incredible communications, their, their, their drama, their theatre, their whatever else, could not save the city. Uh, the, the academics in, in Sodom and Gomorrah could not save the city. Mm-hmm. The city was being held for a while in the hands of, an, in, in my language, I'd call him an old codger, you know, a mm-hmm. hundred-year-old bloke living in a tent, in, you know, like... An insignificant man, an absolutely meaningless person as far as Sodom and Gomorrah were concerned. And yet he was the only one that had any chance of saving that city. Mm. Now that's a man. A man is someone who can actually be in God's throne room, who can do business with God and has more power to dictate the future of even whole civilizations than all of the people who have political or military, or financial, or academic, or other resources and clout at their disposal. Yeah, he had influence. In fact, you you do this definition in your book that um, manhood is a privileged place of moral might that might be offered to mature males who, by making a choice of their will to enter it, may have a relationship with God which empowers them to influence God on behalf of people, places, processes on earth i couldn't have said it better myself (laughs) (laughs) and so so abraham had that ability to be able to influence god absolutely on the fate of sodom and gomorrah but let's let's match that with this moral accountability i think we talked about that in the other interview that we did where we began to get into the subject about this moral accountability because that in itself is incredibly powerful i think it's deeper than most men would like it to be and that takes us back to the life of job uh, Job was an incredibly righteous man. He was like a top man in God's book. When God wanted to brag about somebody on the earth, he bragged about Job. Mm. 
Uh, so we're talking about a really top-notch man in terms of uh, godliness and, and earning the right to be respected by God. So the devil comes along and says, hey, I want the chance to, to test him. I don't believe he's really as, as good an apple as you say he is. I reckon if we can really bring kick him uh, in the solar plexus a couple of times, he's actually going to curse you. And so God allows the enemy to attack Job and to put him through hell. And uh, nobody would want to go through the things that Job went through. Truly tragic and, and ugly in every way. During that whole process, he has a bunch of friends who come and try and help him, and they're really they're part of the problem, not part of the solution. But then we have this amazing transaction that takes place, and it picks up for us uh, toward the end of the book, and I like to see it starting at about chapter 38. Finally, in Job 38, God actually turns up and does what, what Job has been asking him to do all the time, show up and explain what's going on. And so Job speaks, the Lord rather, speaks to Job out of the whirlwind, and he says, who is this person here that's, that's darkening counsel by words without knowledge? And he gives Job a very specific instruction. Gird up now your loins like a man. Interesting. He says, like a man. For I'm going to demand something from you, and this is I want you to answer me. And then God starts laying on him a whole bunch of questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And God just rips into him mm. right through the whole of chapter 38. And then he continues right through the whole chapter 39. Do you know the time when the wild goats of the rock bring forth? Can you mark where the hinds carve? He just rips into him with words and, and challenges that would humiliate someone, showing them that they have got no right whatsoever to be challenging God. God can do all of these things, but man can't do any of them. Now, if you remember... In 38, chapter 38, God actually asked Job to account for himself. So in chapter 40, Job finally gets to speak. Job answers the Lord and says, Behold, I'm vile. Uh, what can I answer you? I'm going to stick my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but, um, and, but I'm not going to speak now. Right? Now that sounds terribly noble. That sounds, sounds very spiritual. Oh, Job humbled himself. But do you realize he actually disobeyed God? God specifically told him, answer me. And he turned around to God and said, I'm not, I wouldn't dare answer you. Now, while I wouldn't dare answer you sounds really pious, it was the exact opposite of what God told him to do. And so God just rips into him again. Then the Lord, and verse 6 of chapter 40, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now gird up your loins now like a man. I'm going to demand of you and declare you unto me. Same as what he'd said before. And then he goes on and rips into him again for the whole of that chapter. And then chapter 41, he asks more questions again. Once again, as it were, um, humiliating and ripping into this man. And finally, the penny drops for Job. And in chapter 42, after all those chapters of being um, shredded by God, then Job answers the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, that no thought can be held from you, who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me which I knew not. He says then, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye can see you. And as a result, I detest myself and I repent in dust and ashes. That was the answer God wanted. So when two chapters earlier he was all very pious and it sounded nice, it actually wasn't where God wanted him to get to. And I like the idea that God is looking for men he can work over. Men he can take them out to the woodshed, take them out to the backyard, 
and work them over. And they're not going to give him some religious play to say, oh God, you're just so nice and I just trust you. None of that sort of stuff. They're actually going to do what God demands of them, answer the question God asks of them, and humble themselves before God because they're the kind of men that are going to be able to do the sort of job that Abraham was doing. Once he got to that point, once Job got to that point and he actually got where God wanted him to be, he got blessed abundantly. You know, he just got all the things he'd ever lost paid back with more and he got to, to, to live a really, really long time and see his great-grandchildren. Just great, wonderful stuff happened to him. But the turning point was when he actually let God work him over. Or as it was, you use the expression out of my book about being morally accountable before God. And so I'm really excited about Job as, as a really awesome example of, of what it is to be a man in God's economy and to let God do with us what he wants us to do. And so the horizon that I want to put before men is that there is an awesome and amazing calling that God's given us. Our culture doesn't understand it and probably won't like it. And it's not our place to offend the culture, but it is our place to obey our God and to let God deal with us so that we live for other people, not for ourselves. That we stand before God and let God rip into us in the deepest possible way. Like to, to, to just cut through all of our religious uh, facade and all of our platitudinous answers that we've thought were okay, that sound pretty good when we're amongst a bunch of other guys. Let him strip that away and, and get down to the core of who we are. And then men who can actually stand in God's throne room and say, God, I hear you've got plans for my nation. I want you to explain what they are. And can I negotiate with you about that, please? What if, and actually men who can, who can um, influence the course of history simply because they are men who stand in God's throne room and do what other men in the Bible illustrate for us is, in fact, God's plan for them to do. The challenge of all that, it's, it sounds pretty scary. When you, I mean, if you look at the life of Job and you think, okay, well, you know, if, um, if, he's painting, if God's painting a picture of, of manhood through the life of Job, now, that's, that's not a place that most men want to go to to, um, you know, to allow God to work them over like that? What's, what's the rewards at the other end of allowing God to, uh, to, um, to work you over like that? I think that that process um, is, is it, 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 hmm, how do I describe this? I have friends that have been through really tough situations, uh, marriage breakup, bankruptcy, uh, imprisoned or whatever. It's amazing how many of those men move to a different place internally, which reflects a different place externally. I'm just amazed at how much compassion I find in men who have been in prison. And they end up with a real desire to go and minister to other people who are in prison. Mm. They never had that thought, never would have crossed their mind. But they're, they're going down through that valley. It didn't just discipline them, didn't just process them the way the system might process them. It shifted them on the inside. Mm. Uh, I've seen people go through uh, tragedy in their home or deep challenges with health and other issues, and they shift. I believe that what God is going to do and wants to do with men is to shift men to a different place in their gizzards. You know, uh, you can see people in a party laughing and clinking their glasses and, and, and enjoying their favorite music and their comforts and everything else. And you can hear the hollow ring of that sound after a while. 
and God is, is not impressed by churches and cultures full of hollow laughter. He's wanting and he's calling men to say to him, God, how can I actually shift internally from that vanity, from that emptiness into something really dramatic? And if I use the example, it was at Belshazzar that uh, had the, the big party, brought out all the goblets out of God's temple, and he had wine, women, and song. And God wrote on the wall and said, you've been weighed on the balance and found wanting, and tonight you're just going to get blown away. You know, I'm afraid that there are men listening to this whose lives are like a leaf that's going to be blown away. Mm. And God is calling them to become something else. In mm. fact, I like what you said earlier, Guy. That was brilliant. See, I'm going to make the comparison. There are men listening to us right now who are just a leaf, a dried leaf in the wind when God wanted them to be the whole tree. Mm. And that's the shift. Mm. And there are people listening to this, they're going to just know on the inside, yes, I don't know how it's going to happen and I hope it doesn't hurt too much, but I actually want to be a tree. Mm. not a leaf mm. blown away in the wind. Not a leaf blown away by the winds of the culture. Absolutely. Mm. Well, I don't know whether that people resonate with that or not, but Guy, I just appreciate you wanting to take the time to draw that out and let me share those thoughts with our audience. But um, I just pray for, for each of the men that listen to, to this and dive into all the resources that Guy is just so faithfully putting together because... We want to see you get there. We want, we're barracking for you. Mm. We want you to make it. Yeah. And, and look, we're limited in what we can do. And we've got our own weaknesses and our own faults, our own struggles as we're well. We're on but, our own journey as well. But we're barracking we're for you. Together, guys. Yeah, we're barracking for you. Go there. Yeah. So um, this has been a great session. I hope you've enjoyed these two, uh, these two sessions that we've, that Chris and I have done together on, on Manhood Horizons. Look, being a man, a godly man, is a choice. Amen. It's a choice of our will. Yep. And it doesn't matter what failures you've racked up till now. Doesn't matter how you've messed up. Doesn't matter, you know, whether you how you how you failed your your family, your wife, your friends, yourself, or God. He is calling each one of us to. Come before him and say, I'm not a man of my own. I want to be a man your way. Not a man of my culture. I want to be a man, a godly man. And so I just want to challenge each one of you, as Chris has done, to come before God and say to him, I've messed up. I haven't been the man that you wanted me to be. Forgive me. And help me to move forward. It's a choice of our will to take responsibility for the different things that we have in our life that we need to lead over, whether it's our family, in our work, our children, over our own lives, our own habits, our response, our, our, our moral life. We need to take that and accept responsibility for it before God. Stop mucking around. It's man up, guys. Chris? Wow. (laughs) Guys, we're barracking for you. It's your choice. We're with you. We're on the journey. We'd love to be on the journey with you. Get on board. Let God make you the man that he wants you to be. Okay. That's a wrap for today. Come over to Real Men 24-7 and uh, and grab some of the resources on there. I'd love to 
hear from you, send us an email at podcasts at realmen247.org or join us on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you, hear your story, hear your struggles, because the thing is that if you're going through a struggle, there's other men just like you that are going through it too. And we don't need to do it alone. So until then, until our next podcast, we'll see you then. Thanks for listening to the Real Talk for Real Men podcast at www.realmen247.org.